A lot of people know that what they want to do is go to the gym and get in shape, but they don't know why they're not doing it already. So we've got to get back to the deeper code. When I first got into my work, you know, a while back now, I was like just fascinated by the fact that people were actually more committed to being right about their shortcomings and being free. One of my more popular quotes is that life will present you with people and circumstances to reveal where you're not free. You're 100% responsible for your life or you're not. Yeah. And if you want to be free and you want to be powerful, then it's the former. Hello, beautiful humans. Welcome back to the Know Thyself podcast, where every single week we have the opportunity and privilege to sit down with an open heart, a brilliant mind. And today is no different. Today I have the privilege of sitting not only with somebody who is an absolutely brilliant individual, but also a dear friend. I think it's a delicacy of me being able to do this podcast as I get to catch up and sit one-on-one for an hour, two hours, and dive deep into the topics that I love having conversations with that we've had many times. My guest today is Peter Crone and a dear friend. He's been pivotal to various chapters and, and periods in my life, really a supportive individual. He's so brilliant. He's so articulate. He's got such an open heart, and I feel a deep resonance energetically to who he is as an individual and also on the path of yana yoga, which is the path of enlightenment through the vehicle of your intellect. And we're going to be diving into various different aspects of this today. Just a little background on Peter Crone. Peter Crone has been given the moniker of the mind architect, which essentially what he does, and he's a master at identifying the limiting beliefs that you have in life, the subconscious paradigms that are really constructs that hold us back from experiencing a life of true freedom. And so what he's really good at is essentially identifying these blind spots in our life that keep us trapped and feeling not fully alive. Peter Crone is one of the most high in demand individuals in the areas of human potential and performance. And he's been hired by some of the world's biggest celebrities and professional athletes and billionaire CEO execs, royalty, just to, you know, the everyday person. And Uh, One thing that I love was you've been called once a combination between Einstein, Buddha, and Austin Powers. (laughs) And uh, and you've said before that if you had a main product for the world, that it was uh, it would be freedom. Yeah. And so, first of all, thank you for being here. Thank you, my friend. That was an impressive intro. (laughs) Like I was like, does he have a teleprompter? (laughs) (laughs) No teleprompter. It's all all in the noggin. (laughs) That's the beauty of uh, being with a friend, I guess. And we have such a beautiful history. And and really, thank you for the flattering words. Like we've had some both, I'd say, spontaneously beautiful conversations, and then some that were a bit more intentional when you were going through some stuff, whether personal or relationship or whatever. And so it's nice to have that background like relatability yeah. for us to have this conversation. But yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think today, not to set the bar too high, but I do think that today's episode, if you're just listening or tuning into this on YouTube, definitely bust out a pen and pad. Today is going to be an episode mm. where we dive very deep. I already feel the immense amount of value that's going to be coming from this episode today. So yeah. I'm excited to dive in. Not like to put too much pressure on us, but it's like, Maybe just the second recording you're saying, but arguably will be the best podcast you've ever done. <laughs> Let's maintain the humility. Okay. Yes. <laughs> Amazing. So yeah. actually, I would like to start, what I kind of mentioned a little bit is that you said one of your main products is freedom. And yeah. initially, I would like to start there because for most people hearing that, they're going to say, I am free. I am yeah. not 
a slave to somebody physically. I'm not being put into a gas chamber in Auschwitz. I am somebody that has autonomy and can make choices in my day-to-day life. So how am I not free? And uh, if you could touch on that, we could start there. Yeah. I think just by virtue of what you shared, and that is most people's experience, really reinforces the absence of freedom by thinking they are free, right? Mm -hmm. So it it's one thing for somebody to know that they may be in a job or a relationship that doesn't fulfill them. There's not a sense of like real joy or affinity if it's in a relationship. But when people, and they're aware of that, that's a conscious thought. And maybe they're doing something to improve their circumstances, whether it be like they're looking for a new job, they want to start their own company. But when people think they are free and they don't know that they're not, it's actually the antithesis of freedom because mm-hmm. it's a blind spot, right? So it's it's getting into that realm of the the unconscious sense of oppression or being trapped, right? So the freedom I speak of is it's very, for a lot of people, it's kind of esoteric, but it's really very fundamental to the human experience, which is I assert we arrive, we're boundless beings, limitless in our essence, but we're under the impression that we are this meat suit, this human and so we go by our name, we go by our nationality, we go by our religion. Like people will declare, like I'm American or I'm Christian, or and so they may think that that's a choice. And for some people, you know, if they've gotten to a place where they're aware of the power of language and it becomes self-declared versus inherited, then sure, there's a degree of freedom that's still there. But for most people, as I just said, they've inherited these these monikers, whether it be their own personal name all the things that they apparently subscribe to, the dogmas that they practice, they're usually invariably something that's been sort of handed down to them. So they think that that's who they are, but it's actually a limitation. It's not It's not good or bad, it's just a limitation. So the freedom I speak of is right to peel away everything that we think is us, which really isn't us, and certainly the things that we've sort of just by osmosis taken from family or culture or even society and see, okay, who am I in the absence of all of those things? That would start the pursuit of real freedom that I'm here to bring. Mm. I love that. You said kind of peel away the layers of who we think we are, right? So this is where films like The Matrix start to feel more like a documentary than a movie. Because it's very much so, if you take a macro look at humanity and the way that most humans are operating in a day-to-day life, they're really ping-ponging between their likes and their dislikes. They have all these assumptions, beliefs, conclusions in which they view life through an identity structure. Yeah. And that is inherently so limiting, right? And so Mm -hmm. how do we first become aware of this code, right? Because it's not until we become conscious of really these paradigms that are operating within us that we can become truly sovereign individuals where we actually are free, right? We were speaking yeah. a little bit to the unconscious incompetence of not knowing what you not know. It's like yeah. complete ignorance. right? So how do we become aware on an individual level what is our own code mm-hmm. to then work with it and become a truly free, sovereign individual? So I think the how is sort of inevitable, right? I would assert that by virtue of being here in this dimension, having a human experience, like we're here, all of us, because there are things to transcend. Like we didn't come to this particular dimension with all of its like duality of good, bad, right, wrong, you know, pleasure, pain, um, because we had transcended constraint, right? So the how is sort of just live your life, 
Right. You, you, you're going to get triggered. So it might be your parents. It might be your lover. It might be your boss. It might be someone in a car who cut you off in traffic. It doesn't, it doesn't really matter. The opportunity to see where we are still confined is where do you get upset about anything? Mm -hmm. So you're obviously so familiar with my work, but one of my more popular quotes is that life will present you with people and circumstances to reveal where you're not free. So this goes back to both my product, which is freedom, but the construct that we're in is by design here to help us to slough away anything that is in the in currently still the barricade to us understanding our true freedom. So some people are obviously doing it very consciously, like they'll listen to someone like yourself, do these podcasts, they're familiar with all the work that I've done or the multitude of podcasts I've been on. And they're like, oh, okay, like I, I, I'm fascinated by this. There's a resonance, there's a form of inspiration. And some people stumble into it just through direct suffering, right? Like the guy who has a heart attack in his mid fifties, who has been told countless times by his GP that, hey, you know, like we started on this level of a statin and you need to cut back on whatever fats and sugars and they, they don't know anything about nutrition, but that's what probably they're going to tell them. But it took a heart attack for him to actually revisit his diet and lifestyle, right? So there was this sort of traumatic episode that was sufficient of a catalyst for him to go, okay, maybe the way that I'm living my life isn't that functional. So that's, you you know, so it sort of can be a conscious choice to pursue like, okay, I'm here seeking to use your word, my sovereignty, my real, like I want to explore the potential of who I am as a being. And then there are others who just sort of get the, quintessential cosmic two by four around the face. <laughs> <laughs> and it's like, hey, you you know, you're sleeping at the wheel and you're running a lot of people over. You know, so it's like, uh, it's, as I said, it's unavoidable. Yeah. Like you just live your life. Like, right. you know, I could sit in satsang with people and they're around and they're like inspired and they're, wow, this is cool. And I'm like, yeah, okay, but we're, we're not going to sit here for 20 years. You've got to right. go outside, pick up your dry cleaning, still talk to your kids. You know, it's like live life. Yeah. And um, that to me is why this, this particular construct is it's so fascinating that it doesn't matter who you are and whatever your particular journey is and the karma that you're here to resolve, you're going to have your particular, the subtleties, the idiosyncrasies of your particular human arc are are absolutely inextricably perfect for what you're here to reconcile. Mm. I mean, it's insane, right? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) It's amazing. Articulated so beautifully. Like it's- Thank you. We are in this dimension where we have relativity and it was one of my big insights coming out of the darkness retreat as well. Like I've also, I don't know if you've read the books of Dartha. Um, uh-huh, yeah. But has. yeah, I, I resonate with the whole story of his journey so deeply. Cause for me earlier on, you know, 1920, starting to go to these Vipassana meditation retreats, mm-hmm. finding a deep level of resonance in, in healing in those places yeah. and almost having a, you know, a part of me wanting to, all right, I just want to like go away for a long time, meditate, quote unquote, in a cave, not literally, but yeah, and and dive into myself. And I've done that sporadically through different periods of my life. But like you said, through relationship and through relativity, you be what your issues are that you have problems with become revealed to you. Yeah, and and so how because. Like you said, getting smacked in the face with a cosmic two by four. Unfortunately, that's the reality of most people. They have to get slapped by life to really wake up to say, okay, my health, my relationships, my mindset, it's in a really dark place. Yeah. 
for most people that are listening to this podcast right now, they have the opportunity to make the realization that you don't have to wait for the two by four yeah. to, to wake up to this realization. Yeah. So if we could speak a little bit to the function of how to deeply listen without needing to get those big wake up calls in life. So we can have kind of some foresight into ahead of the curve of what's coming. Yeah. And of course there's always going to be to a degree of what we're oblivious to. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Becoming aware of the actual function and how that is revealed to us. And many times that you've said is essentially these behavioral adaptations that we create Yeah. that show up as compensation patterns. For yeah. example, if we, you know, have a deep fear of not being loved. We're going to compensate by maybe women, money, cars, trying to garner appreciation yeah. and respect externally because we have a void within ourselves that we need to fill. Yeah. And so there are so many different behavioral adaptations that we can create based off of, of an innate feeling of lack. Yeah. And so could you speak to that a little bit of how we create those and how to become observant of those so we can work with it before we get smacked by a two by four? Sure. <laughs> I just have this vision now of everybody like after they listen to this podcast walking around like with these pieces of limber, tumba, tumba, limber. <laughs> that's that's interesting. Yeah. Or lumber and timber. Yes. I, I, I limber and tumba. <laughs> that's the name of like a new pop group out of Korea. Madumba. <laughs> that's Indian. But anyway, um, so yes. So again, it's kind of weird because the illusion of choice is such that it's an illusion, right? There's figurative choice and there's literal choice. So people listening to this go, okay, I'm going to choose. But you you can choose like maybe they listen to something, they read a book, they watch a movie like a matrix or something. It's a little bit more sort of in that realm of self-realization and they're like inspired. No different than it's January 1st and people are like, oh, I'm inspired to get in shape. But we all know that the majority of people are going to fall short like within three or four weeks of whatever their goal was for the year. So there's a there's a very subtle but profound balance between our conscious choice to want to do something. Like I, some, I want to find a great relationship. I want to make more money. So there's that inherent feeling of desire. But it gets juxtaposed against the deeper, much more profound and certainly more powerful subconscious uh, self-righteous like labeling, right? So somebody might be like, I want to have a really beautiful relationship. But as you were saying, if their fundamental way that they relate to say self is that I'm unlovable, it's it's a losing proposition, right? And they could go on every dating app, they could get a matchmaking service, they could talk to all their friends. And in fact, some of those behavioral adaptations would be the reaction to the feeling of not being lovable in the first place, right? So it becomes right. a little bit of a self-fulfilling prophecy, unfortunately. So the how is like for certainly inspiration, you know, it's great. Like pursue like community where there's people like-minded who have profound conversations, listen to podcasts like Know Thyself and, you know, get mm -hmm. like these aha moments hopefully. And it's like, oh, I see something now. It's really that shift in perspective. Or we're back to the the two by four where it's like life, life will help you. You know, it's like even when we feel like we're in those positions of the greatest form of adversity or the greatest amount of adversity, it's really life is like trying to in in its best way with as much compassion as possible to nudge you to see something so the how is really and i talk about this in my work i have two predominant sort of stages which is awareness and then practice awareness and practice awareness and practice so the awareness is the insight of like oh my gosh like i've had this particular coping mechanism for 30 years where i've been a people pleaser yeah the awareness around it, it could be one, you see the behavioral adaptation that you use as a coping skill. 
because perhaps the father or the mother didn't give you enough attention. It's like, okay, well, if I be a really good kid and I really behave and I get everything right and I'm never bad, then hopefully I'll garner enough love and acceptance from my parents, which is such a primal need for a, for a being, especially as a kid, because, you know, your survival's dependent on it, right? Like you get kicked out of the nest, like you're not going to make it. So um, that can be powerful just to see, wow, I've done that. And I can remember certain events in my childhood that were really the catalyst for me to start that. Then there's the real awareness, which is like, okay, looking at the validity of what's beneath that. Like, why did I become a people pleaser? Right. Why did I become a perfectionist? So that's when we get into the deeper subconscious patterns of like, okay, the behavioral adaptation, the coping mechanism is people pleasing or perfectionism. That's an action, right? Any action that people are doing, and this is why I'm, I'm segueing away here, but like, you know, when people go and see an expert of any kind, usually they're waiting for instruction. They're being told what to do. Yeah. But as soon as you're in that realm, it's a little bit too late, right? Because a lot of people know that what they want to do is go to the gym and get in shape, but they don't know why they're not doing it already. So we've got to get back to the deeper code, right? So the people-pleasing and perfectionism come back is invariably a coping mechanism, a strategy on top of a feeling of inadequacy. But the feeling of inadequacy is a byproduct of the narrative where it's not that I believe I'm not enough, that being, that the, the identity is not enough. Mm. But it's like, and it's subtle but important because if, if it's a belief, then it's sort of, it's got a, a degree of separation. There's a degree of space from my awareness of the narrative. Yeah. Most people's narratives that drive their behavior and their coping mechanisms that inextricably lead to the results that they don't actually want is because who they fundamentally are for themselves is whatever the constraint is. It's not like I think I'm not good enough. It's like I am not good enough. Now, we know that's just in the realm of identity. It's not who you are literally. That's another layer beneath that. So it's the awareness of the behavior. That's great. And then you can try and make some modifications, but that's hard, right? Because if you haven't dealt with the programming that's the precursor to the behavioral adaptation, you're sort of like it's... You're, you're, you're fighting from one end to the other. You've got one foot on the brake, one foot on the accelerator. It's like, I want to I stop being a people pleaser. Right, okay, but the brake is still on, which is like you think that you're fundamentally not enough. Right. So my work is to be able to reveal those deeper constraints so that the behavioral adaptation dissipates. It's not something you're told to change or not do anymore. It's just, oh, I'm literally not who I was and therefore who I now am in the absence of who I thought I previously was is going to like naturally give rise to different adaptations and behaviors. Right. Does that make sense? So yeah. I know it gets pretty hefty, but I know you can, you can hang. <laughs> so, yeah. so yeah, otherwise it's like, you've got a mannequin and you just put different clothes on it, but the mannequin is fundamentally the same. Yeah. Right. So that's yeah. what most people are doing is they're changing the window dressing. Right. But they're not actually getting to what's the, the, the deepest form of dialogue that was usually established in a very young age and i'd actually assert we arrived with it mm. right like people still want to play the blame game it was my dad like never gave me affection or my mom was telling mm. me i was a mistake or you know that that there's this um association with our trauma as somebody else did it and i think it's a very disempowering way to live right because now you're a victim of circumstance which tends to propagate through the rest of someone's life right so as a kid you might not remember but like oh i'm a victim of my dad and he was never affectionate or he'd always tell me that like I was never good enough, you know, and now you're in a relationship where you feel like my, your partner doesn't appreciate you. It's, it's the same energy. Yeah. 
but you're still fundamentally playing the victim versus in my world, you're hundred percent responsible for your life or you're not. Yeah. And if you want to be free and you want to be powerful, then it's the former, mm. you know, otherwise for most people that I, I don't care about 99% responsible. It's like, then you're still a victim. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So, so I jumped around a lot there, but yeah. like, that's the sort of looking at the how the how is sort of the behavioral, the real how in terms of like eliciting true freedom to go back to my product and, uh, this sort of expansive feeling of complete liberation, but at the same time power is to be able to look at who, who is it that I am in the way that I perceive myself to be that is the precursor of the way that I think, feel, behave, and consequently the results I get. That's the cascade. Yeah. And so when we reverse engineer that and we look at results that people say they don't want, we can go, okay, well, the, the actions that you are taking, like let's take something like weight, right? Yeah. Like that's a big one. People don't want to be out of shape and overweight. Okay, but if we were to follow you 24-7, we would see the absence of exercise or movement, the presence of uh, excess calories, like you're taking in more than your body needs. And so there's over time a, an accumulation. But then why are we doing that? Well, there's a feeling of like, I'm lonely, I'm depressed, like I'm I'm not motivated. Okay, well, those feelings tend to gravitate towards the behavior, which is the eating of the excess food, because there's a lot of comfort in that, the dopamine response, all of that. It's a, a form of self-medication. Okay, but the feeling of like being depressed and down and lonely and okay, what does that belong in? That's going to be a deeper context of perhaps like I'm not lovable, I'm not enough. Right. So you, people can try and change the external. Right. But it's like I use this metaphor of like you drop a pebble in a pond and you get these like beautiful ripples coming out. And for the sake of argument, based on the the sort of the, the lineage that I just was talking about, let's say there's five ripples and the result is the fifth ripple. And so people look at the fourth ripple as a behavior right. and they're trying to change that. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. So you like that one. So it's yeah. like, it's like getting to that, like, okay, well, we'll stop dropping the pebble. Yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah, absolutely. So, so it's two by fours and pebbles. <laughs> it's arts and crafts. Write right that shit down. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> That's what my work comes down yes. to. <laughs> yeah. No, it makes total sense that people are overly focused on the activity uh, to make improve their life, right? Mm -hmm. Like circumstantial comfort, which you speak to is, is beautiful. But mm -hmm. if you're only working with essentially, and this is, you know, talk therapy can kind of operate in this realm often where you're working on things at the surface yeah. and it might make you feel better for a little bit, but you're not really removing or working with the identity that is holding it. It's, it's like right. the container for what you're even doing in the first place. So unless you heal that or move through that, yeah. it's going to keep showing up in different forms. Yeah. There's a lot of things that make people feel better for a minute, like meth, crack, like, you know, <laughs> alcohol, weed, you know, yeah. it's like there's a multitude of methodologies by which people can escape their own suffering, but then they're not escaping anything. And in fact, it tends to become like, even more persistent, right? Because the means by which you have to be able to undo the constraints with which you arrive become, they become compromised by virtue of like the addiction to whatever it is. And even if it's early stage, right? Like, so that when we compromise the integrity of our own like exquisite machinery of mind and body, then the, the faculties that we have available to us to be able to undo the things that create our own suffering suddenly become more inhibited or less powerful. Yeah. So that's where we see, and it's just, it's tragic. And it's very sad to see people who do end up on the streets or do end up in addiction of some form that like ultimately is the demise of their, their life or their dreams and their aspirations. And it's sort of maybe a weird metaphor, but it's like if you're riding a bike and you start to like lose balance and you're leaning just slightly, the, 
the capacity that you have to rectify that doesn't need to be like that vast, right? Because it's a small deviation. But the more that the bike starts to lean right. metaphorically in life, the more that you become disassociated with your true divine nature, yeah. then the harder it is just by the laws of physics, like certainly in the, in the case of the analogy of the bike, to actually, you know, right yourself and come back. And that's mm -hmm. where, again, sometimes that going back to the two by four is what people need. Now, sadly, it can sometimes be too late, but then, right. you know, there's a deeper compassion, which is that that's the karma of that person for this particular lifestyle <clears throat> yeah. or lifetime. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's bad that bad things happen to people. It's even worse if you continue to be defined by them. It's almost like, and you see this in many different arenas of life, for sure, in the plant medicine groups, uh, you see this in in talk therapy and and many different avenues where you almost reinforce the narrative that you have an issue in the first place by yeah. continually talking about it as if it exists and it's a real thing. Yeah, but it's not. Right. Well, subtle distinction it is to a degree. Yes. So it's real because if you were to take someone's vitals, they would have hypertension, like high blood pressure. They'd have an increased respiratory rate, heart rate. And their experience of life would be like, say, anxiety. That's a real phenomenon. Right. And they're going to have measurable, quantifiable, physiological impacts. The distinction that I teach, at least, is it's real. It's just not true. Mm -hmm. and it's subtle but profound. Yeah. So it's not an actual truth that you're not good enough. It is your reality that then becomes your personality, mm -hmm. right? So over time, it just becomes more ingrained. This is why kids are so, you know, pliable and malleable because they they haven't got time with conditioning fighting against them just yet right mm. now some come in with very strong karma perhaps and it, it gets kicked off very early in terms of like whatever they might manifest whether yeah. like some kids get the leukemias or some kids are just like real troublesome and get into sort of the wrong group so to speak but um yeah if you can recognize the the gravity of your own constraints and that's where we need to have a lot of love and compassion because yeah. it, it can can be really difficult, you know, sometimes to even look at that, to even look at these things. And um, that's why it's great to have reflection, community, yeah. love, friends. But like you said, plant medicine for some people, but they can have, going back to my buckets of awareness and practice, a lot of people with ceremony get huge awareness like oh buckets my god of awareness. buckets of awareness buckets of vomit buckets pebbles and two by <laughs> yeah bring a bucket that's gonna be uh not that we have business cards anymore but if i did i'd put that on there um so but what i have seen at least and then by no means do i know every plant ceremony community around yeah, the world. Of course. But yeah. for the most part i see that there's a little bit of the absence of the practice the integration and the yeah. understanding so it comes back to like really understanding the mechanics, like the difference between truth and reality, truth being our absolute nature versus reality being our relative nature. Um, and the relative nature is always just by design, just by its very structure is founded in limitation and constraint. Right? So if we go back to the absolute, which you're going to be familiar with the term, just like I am, right? We could say if we're going to use linguistics and words to describe that part of us, it's like I am. Now, then you can get poetic about it and go, I am love or I am freedom. Like, and I'd say they're much more accurate than I am not good enough. And so 
you start to recognize one of my quotes is like words of the wardrobe for the soul, right? So language becomes the container in which we function. If I live within the container of I'm not enough, it's obviously most people are going to understand and they can probably relate to it. It's a very confined container versus something that's perhaps a little more impersonal and certainly not a negation of possibility. It's like I'm not good enough is a constraint versus say I am love. Now, people may not fully understand how that looks in life, but they can certainly feel that if I am love, then all of a sudden the way that they communicate with their doorman or their wife or their kids or their parents or their colleagues, it has a different resonance to it. Like they they wouldn't even recognize who they could be by virtue of the fact that who they have been is an expression of constraint. So that's where the behavioral adaptation starts to become automated. It has to be practiced. But if I'm walking around the planet and I am love, then I have a different relationship to the cashier at a grocery store versus I'm not enough. And I'm in my own head where I'm like, okay, I've got to work harder. How am I going to pay my rent this month? And I need to get money and I owe this. But like I'm at a cashier register with a human being who's there who's got a heartbeat and their own history but I'm actually in my own head. There's no relatability. And so the sense of fulfillment of my own experience is completely compromised, which only then actually exacerbates the feeling of inadequacy because I don't have a sense of like real joy in my life because I'm not connecting with people. So it's just pure survival. So that was a lot, but (laughs) (laughs) this whole podcast is going to be a lot. So (laughs) get used to it. (laughs) Tends to download pretty heavy, but yeah, Yeah, so it's, it's being able to distinguish that I am absolute from what you're saying on top of that, that becomes a prism within which we live, that then we're constantly trying to escape, not remember, not realizing or at least remembering that we actually created the prison in the first place. Mm. Therein lies the conundrum. Yeah. Seems like the identity structures are so glued to the, it's like they're operating, operating as the identity structure. So what is the best way you found to create distance from who you have been so yeah. you can step into who you could be? Two by fours. <laughs> <laughs> it always comes back yeah. to live life, get out there. Yeah. You can sit and philosophize all day and you do this better than most people that I know in terms of like your practice, right? It's a really beautiful discipline and your sadhana and your meditation. So that's another form of inspiration. It might be like not plants aren't the catalyst for an insight, but perhaps sitting quietly for oneself in meditation, focusing on your breathing, you can just dip your toe in something that perhaps is less familiar than the day-to-day grind, right? It's like, oh, yeah. I sat still for 20 minutes. I didn't suddenly become a millionaire. I you know, wasn't suddenly put on billboards and famous or some of the things that some people think they want. But there was a real experience of peace. And that shift is, again, bucket number one, awareness, right? It's like, wow, maybe the way that I've constructed my own pursuits in life aren't that accurate, meaning that like one day when, like in this like constant like hamster wheel type mindset of I've got to get somewhere and just simply through sitting quietly in meditation, somebody could find that the experience they think is to be found in the way off distant future was just readily available. And so that can equally become an incredibly powerful experience for people to just stop for a minute, Mm -hmm. slow down. Like, you know, if if there was an instruction that people, and I tend to not be the instructional guy, because again, I'm not interested in changing behavior. I'm interested in changing perception, perception, but it would be, you know, slow down. Mm. Because in the, it's kind of like, I love using analogies as you're probably familiar, but like, you know, if you've got a car that you're driving on the highway at 70 miles an hour, 
and you're hearing some noise and you're hearing like some rattles and certainly doesn't sound like, you know, the, the integrity of the car is intact. So you don't try to like just bring it down to 60 miles an hour and go, okay, like I'm going to lean out the window here and see if I can change that tire. You know, mm-hmm. it's like, no, you pull over and you stop. Yeah. So I think that's a beautiful reflection of like when people are going through hard times, sometimes the discomfort can be a catalyst for even more restlessness, right? People don't want to be in discomfort. We're, we're designed as mammals to avoid pain and find, seek pleasure. So, but being big enough to actually sit with both, right? Like your dark side, your pain, your discomfort, your suffering, the things you don't want in life is ironically the catalyst for you to becoming an even more powerful human being who then actually has a greater proclivity to get what you do want, right? So um, just slowing down sometimes is actually yeah. the the greatest conduit to resolving whatever issues you think you have that you think will be done by being busier and getting somewhere in the future. Because mm. every everything that you do from that point forward, you will be a better version of yourself. You bring yourself into everything that you do in life. Mm-hmm. Some of the best advice I've gotten is literally just shut up, look right. and listen. Yeah. And just like pause. Have some pause. good girlfriends. <laughs> <laughs> I was like when I went with some professional golfers and they're like, you know, they always say to the caddy, it's like, you know, Show up, keep up, and shut up. There you go. <laughs> You're a good cat. Stupid simple. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> Amazing. So yeah. I would love to dive into, because we touched on it a little bit, the power of language, right? Because you've mm-hmm. said in the past that words are both the key and the lock. Yes. And it's really, that is the function of, of how we speak to ourselves. We speak to ourselves in words. Yeah. First, I would like to start in an interesting place. If, if, we raised a child in a forest somewhere and never taught them a language. You and I, is this you proposing? (laughs) This is a setup. (laughs) I'm saying we should do this. Will you have a baby with me? (laughs) I guess men can have babies now. Apparently. Uh, apparently. (laughs) (laughs) That's a whole different conversation. That is a, yeah. Talking about words and anyway, carry on. Sorry. Yeah. So we have a baby in the woods. I just got thrown by the image. So if you will have a baby with me in the woods, (laughs) we don't teach this baby any language. Essentially, will they still have potential feelings of inadequacy? Let's say they become a teenager and an adult. If they don't have any words to like operate within their mind, how, I mean, they're going to be limited obviously to a certain degree, but yeah. Would these feelings of inadequacy and the way that we talk to ourselves and the way that we create these programs be able to exist? I mean, it's a great conversation. And obviously in this day and age, it's very, you know, hypothetical. Yeah, it is. Right? Because first of all, no offense, like you're a beautiful man, but this isn't going to happen. And I'm not sure I want to live in the woods. (laughs) (laughs) And I don't know how hard we'd have to try. It's not going to happen. So, um, so yeah, I mean, are there people in indigenous tribes somewhere who like literally are living in the rainforest, but they, even if they don't have typical language that we're accustomed to, like British, British, English, whatever it is, like people are speaking in some form of vibration or sound. You know, if you look back at sort of our predecessors of many, many generations, they obviously sound vibration as vibrational beings is an inextricable part of the experience of being human. Even if you step on a Lego, you know, it's like, ow, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, right. like, like, was that something you learn or right. like, like there's an utter, there's an iteration of some sort of sound, right? Mm-hmm. Like you utter a noise 
that for some reason, whether it's deep in our DNA code, like everybody understands that like, okay, that was a pleasurable sound and that was like a discomforting sound. So I think even in this hypothetical conversation, like a kid being raised in the wood, first of all, it'd have to be like, if it's a real baby, like the baby's not going to make it, right? So there has to be some sort of custodian energy. And even if there isn't like utterance and there's not an actual recognizable language, there's going to be communication. So I think we can go a little layer deeper than just words itself and recognize the communion of connection with another being. So mothers who are listening to this will know that they don't necessarily have to say a word to their child. Even once they've sort of fled the nest, so to speak, and they're at college, they can have this instinctual feeling that, wait, our daughter's not well right now, right? So that speaks now the quantum realm of entanglement theory where there's this deep, profound connection. So I think... You know, this is tends to be the way that humans want to focus on things. Like, look yeah. at turmeric. Like, we want to extract the active ingredient, right? So we want to have these silos. We want to, okay, but if I took a kid and put it in, it's like, yeah, it's a fun conversation, yeah. but it ain't going to happen, right? Yeah. So, but it might give people an insight into the power of language. Like, okay, so if I didn't have words, would I suffer, really, is the context of your conversation mm-hmm. or the question. So I'd say... There's a distinction between pain and suffering. Pain to me is physiological, right? Like if I if I get up and I stub my toe on a table, like it's going to hurt and I'm going to, you know, say ouch. Yeah. <laughs> or probably something more profound and like, <laughs> son of a... Anyway, so, um, but suffering to me is where we get into that realm of something that is um, at least somewhat optional. It's, it's unavoidable because you're human, but it becomes like there's a degree to which through the karma of our journey, we can mitigate the majority of it, right? That's my work. It's really fundamentally to get rid of suffering. So in the absence of language, would there be suffering? It's a great question, and it could be a good debate. I would still say that just by virtue of being a sentient being, that there's an internal feeling that it might be of isolation, right? So there's no inherent pain, but like having primal sense of belonging, a feeling of wanting to have a value and connection. In the absence of that, I would assert that's still suffering. They may not have language. Look at a baby who doesn't know how to speak. And when they're first, so they don't have language. When they're first, sort of that first moment that the mother and the child is separated, invariably the child screams or cries. Yeah. So we could say that is suffering that is not a byproduct of language that it's constrained, yeah. right? So so I think we got to the answer. Got it. <laughs> so yes, the kid's still going to suffer. <laughs> yeah, but because- language exacerbates that yeah. massively. And I say compounds what is primal, right? Yeah. So there's this sort of what we could say is a natural response to being a sentient being, having a human experience where you're just going to go through the aches and pains of just being human. Yeah. Then, in particularly in today's society, it, there is on top of that, there is this extra layer of suffering that is by virtue of all of the constraints based in language and the way that we're spoken to, the societal like wrongs and rights of what you can and can't do, and suddenly you're like in this very tight box, yeah. all of which is language. But I think even without language, you know, Neanderthal man was going to have, you know, I don't know if they had disagreements about who was doing the washing up because they didn't have a kitchen sink, but like, I'm sure there was some disagreements. <laughs> Something, you know? for yeah. Sure. yeah. Yeah. No, I think you, you nailed it with, even if there wasn't language, there was still communication to a certain degree. Yeah. I think if you take two individuals raised in, in different households and one maybe was 
told they were loved a lot, but energetically they weren't embraced in mm-hmm. a way mm-hmm. versus somebody who maybe wasn't, you know, words of affirmation weren't as present in the household, but there was an energy of love and embrace present. Yeah. They will have two fundamentally different views of themselves as they go into the world. Yeah. And I think it's so interesting because there's this African proverb that, that says a child who's not embraced by the village will burn it down to feel its warmth. Okay. Right. And I think it's so interesting to, to look at that into how, I mean, we can go into many different avenues of this, but there's a hardwired desire within us to belong. Yeah, absolutely. And I would love for you just to speak on that a little bit, because a lot of these programs that we're talking to function based off the belief that we're, we're trying to belong because we don't feel like we do. Yeah. Which becomes, again, somewhat of a self-fulfilling prophecy in a bit of a deleterious way, right? Because if we are under the impression that we're separate and we want to belong, what we keep reinforcing is this feeling of detachment, right? So, and it's something that I would assert is one of the pivotal points in my life, like the two by four for me, Peter Crone, you know, was really one of the precursors to me having these distinctions and insights was when my dad died, right? because that was after my mom had died and I was an only child. So it was sort of this visceral experience of separation. It wasn't like I feel separate, but I'm married, but it's just my husband doesn't give me attention or my kids don't pay me any mind. They don't listen to me. And a lot of people have that experience of feeling separate or alone, even though they're in a community, they're in a family, or perhaps they're somewhat ostracized from their personal family. And look at what went on in these last two years of BS, you know, I think we share a lot of similar values around, (laughs) you know, like that mass psychosis process speaks to like really appealing to the fundamental desires of a human, like belonging, value, and, and, uh, security. So all of those were stripped away and we could argue that that was intentionally done. So like through media and whatever these people in power, uh, telling us, right. Like, you know, you're, you're, everything out there is dangerous. Don't touch your Amazon boxes. You're going to die. You know, there's, so you strip away security. And then obviously the sense of belonging is the big one that we're speaking to, which is you can't see your loved ones. And even if they're in sick care or in the hospital and you know, you, you, you can't go and say goodbye as they pass, like that's devastating. And then you're not essential. Like, so you strip away somebody's sense of self-worth, right? So then all of a sudden people are desperate and they'll do whatever you tell them, which again, a conversation for another time. But the belonging, I would say, is probably the most profound. And we could argue for multiple reasons that the reason being is that underneath it all, underneath the illusion of separation and diversity, there's actually just unity. Mm-hmm. So if our, perhaps not in a conscious way, but in a very profound primal way, our feeling is of belonging, like that's who we are, that we are part of whether you call it the absolute consciousness, God, whatever word you use. But we're looking through this illusory sense of separation because Andre's there and Peter's here and like, I'm I'm over here, you're there. So there's, well, clearly we're separate, yeah. right? So then what does Peter have to do to get Andre to accept him? Although now we found out you want to run away to the woods with me and have a <laughs> child. So apparently I've, I'm good. <laughs> good. I'm, I've, I've found belonging. <laughs> um, so that that becomes like the motivating factor for a lot of people in their behavioral adaptations and their coping strategies is because of the primal feeling of not being loved and belonging, going back to your African proverb, which is beautiful. So when people really hear this and maybe they can even in uh, right now, as I'm saying these words, recognize, wow, what are the manipulative methods I'm using in my own romantic relationships, my professional relationships, my family relationships, where I am under the impression that I have to be somebody in order to belong, which then only propagates the very feeling underneath the behavior that I don't 
fundamentally belong. Like, and that that is part of that freedom that I bring is that like you can't not belong. You're part of the gang. You don't need a black card, American Express, <laughs> right? Like you, you you're in the gang. Like it's called humanity. You're here. Well done. Right now, if you want to keep pretending you're not and then develop all of these very exhausting, by the way, like methods of trying to belong, whether it be like, you know, for women, I feel most, the most amount of compassion, the pressure on a female these days, especially in the Western world is just, it's, it's pretty obscene, you know, in terms of beauty, sexuality, like how you're supposed to look, the shape of your body, the size of your lips, the size of da, 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 you know, fill in the blank, right? It's like the fashion, the clothing, it's, um, it's immense. And then they're supposed to also raise a family with like love and compassion and intelligence and give them the right food. And it's like, holy shit. Like most guys don't understand the bandwidth of a woman, especially a mother. Yeah. So I think if we could perhaps give ourselves a break in that realm of belonging, it would ironically um, make for a greater community of belonging because <laughs> people <laughs> could relate and go, oh my God, you're doing the same thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, as long as I've been like a teenager, I've been under the impression that I have to be the subservient partner in order to be loved and accepted and because that's how I was raised. So every boyfriend I've attracted or every girlfriend I've attracted has been more dominant. And it's like, now I've seen that. It's like, I don't want to do that anymore. It's like, okay, great. Like, so we could argue that the ultimate form of belonging is not me and other, but me and self. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> know thyself, yeah. Amazing. Yeah, and that belonging <laughs> seems, it might seem counterintuitive, but it's almost like what I'm actually... What I'm actually making space for, which really is the quintessential expression of love as far as I'm concerned, is I'm making space for the part of me that doesn't feel loved. That's real love, right? I'm making space for, I'm including, and I'm, I'm bringing the energy of belonging to the part of me that doesn't feel like it belongs. So for most people, the human, the the tendency, which is, is it's just madness when you look at it, is like the, one of the one of the qualities or characteristics of being human is I don't want to be human. Mm. So if you really get like, again, like the conundrum there and why most people fail terribly is, no, the, the beauty of being human is to learn to embrace your humanity. Mm-hmm. So, you know, like that to me is such a beautiful love affair. Yeah. With my own flaws and perfections and the part of me that fundamentally feels like it is broken. I'm going to make space for that. Mm. So beautiful. Cause we so often operate in the world projecting literally what our own inadequacies are. And it's like, we don't feel embraced in the world. We haven't even embraced ourselves. Yeah. What we present is the compensation. Yeah. Which doesn't really matter because energetically it's still an expression of the feeling of inadequacy or insecurity or scarcity. Yeah. So you know, most people aren't necessarily that sensitive to be able to pick up on it, but it doesn't really matter because at a subconscious level they are, which is like, okay, you might see someone who for all intents and purposes looks beautiful and perfect and they're wearing the right on Vogue outfit for whatever season it is and da-da-da and their skin's glowing today. But like if the energy by which they are presenting this ambassador of themselves is still coming from this flawed view of themselves, That's ultimately what gets recognized. It might get them a few dates. It might even get them married, you know, but check back in 6, 12, 18 months, you know, and it's like, okay, the relationship's not working. Well, no, because you are in a relationship with your facade, not with true self. Yeah, beautiful. I'd like to go now into talking a little bit, which is I think a common theme for the collective right now, which is uncertainty, being in the unknown, Yeah, uh, which is... 
the reality of how things are. Um, I think that I'm curious, what are your, what's your perspective? You take two people and one is facing the unknown uncertainty of life and they feel a general sense of excitement Mm -hmm. versus somebody who's scared for their life. Yeah. What is the difference energetically there between those two people and how they view reality? Cause they're seeing the same thing, but they're perceiving two very different things. Yeah. So I would really, I think it, in that case, it boils down to somebody's like in lay terms, we could just say personal confidence, personal wealth, uh, like in terms of their own value, mm-hmm. not financial wealth, but like their ability to recognize that perhaps a person who's viewing uncertainty through the lens of excitement has gone through life's hard knocks, meaning where maybe when they were younger, and oftentimes we see this as people get older and there's a little bit more wisdom, it's invariably just maturity because you've gone through so much crap in your life that you're like, okay, well, I'm still here. I'm going to make it. So I'd say that's where somebody's got this, just a profound feeling of like just capacity to deal with whatever life brings them. Then the secondary person who's looking through the lens of terror and worry and fear, you know, there's there's all manner of ways by which they could have arrived there, right? Which is that they were a kid and they would be asleep. And then at two o'clock in the morning, their dad would wake them up because he was drunk. And he's like, come and dance or come and play. And, you know, it's terrifying for a kid. You're like fast asleep. And I've heard stories like this. Or you're sitting at the table and then all of a sudden there's a massive fight in the kitchen between your parents. And that triggers a feeling of complete and utter panic for a kid because it's like your life is perceived to be in danger when you're at that level, like when you're that young. So if those those conditioned patterns have been established at young age where you're in an environment where there's the absence of security or safety to go back to your tribe metaphor where a kid isn't held, a kid doesn't even have to be abused. Like to me, it's 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 quite a blanket statement by saying anything that's the absence of love is abuse. You know, it's a big, bold statement, but I'm going to stand by it. So like a kid might not be sexually abused, physically abused, emotionally abused, but if they're not loved, they're being abused. And that's a real wake up call to a lot of people. But so that child in the absence of the feeling of like being seen, being heard, being held, being acknowledged, being reassured, invariably, and that's the world that we tend to have right now, no slight on parents, but everyone is like so sort of spread thin that they don't have the ability to have that presence with their child, most people. And so usually the majority of humans that we see do have that form of feeling of like panic and terror around uncertainty. So that's why most people are walking around in a state of fear and like anxiety is so prevalent. I don't know the numbers, but it's hundreds of millions of people around the world who deal with it. And they might not call it anxiety. They might not be on a prescribed drug for anxiety. At least I hope they're not. But, you know, they would still say, I'm worried. You know, there's a sort of a gradient of fear, right? Like we could say panic and terror is like one end and anxiety and then fear and then perhaps worry, apprehension, mild concern and consideration or doubt. You know, it's like, not everybody's in a real state where it's affecting them physiologically and it's sort of being deleterious over time to all their tissues, but that's when people get really sick. So to wrap up the answer to your question, the irony about excitement and fear, because that's the word you use, is I'd say they're actually two sides of the same coin. So it might look like on the surface that the person's like gung-ho and excited about life yeah. it certainly has a better lens to live by. And, and for sure, I'd much of the two, I'd much rather choose excitement. More useful. Than, yeah. And, and it's a, just a better experience of myself and life, right? Yeah. Like, okay, cool. I'm excited to go to this 
dinner party tonight or there's a bash at my friend's house and I'm hoping that so-and-so is going to be there and I'm looking right. forward to. So it's a much more future-based proposition. Like the one that's based in fear and anxiety is actually, it looks like I'm worried about the future, but really it's a reflection of a history that was very traumatic and right. I'm just hoping it doesn't get repeated. So that's where again, one of my quotes, I say past hurt informs future fear. So fear and excitement, going back to what I said, to me are both sides of the same coin, or two sides of the same coin, sorry. And um, it tends to still take us out of just being where we are. Right. It's still a conversation about reality that you're having. Yeah, you're still in some proposed, projected, superimposed vision of a future that hasn't happened yet. Yep. And this is why also excitement can end up in suffering, right? Because it becomes unfulfilled expectation. So I had the excitement of I'm like, there's this girl that I met the other day and we're all going to this event or we're all going to Coachella or whatever and I'm going to see her. But for some reason, you go there with the excitement of seeing this person, guy, girl, or whatever, or opportunity for a business. And then that doesn't actually transpire. Well, now you created excitement that leads to unfulfilled expectation that now creates suffering. You lose either way. <laughs> Hence why same, you know, two sides of the same coin. So I listen, I'm all about all of it, right? Like, again, I want to be a big enough being that even if I have over my life had different periods of fear or excitement, it's okay. Like, you yeah. know, you're human. Like we don't want to walk around and just be, you know, completely oblivious to anything around us where, you know, it's a powerful place to be perhaps where I'm just not a victim of anything. That's great. We can call that awakening, enlightenment, whatever. But, you know, look, we also got to recognize we're human. We're here in this time where there's, there's a shit ton of shit going on out there right now. You know, it's like you're doing a great job if you're not being triggered at some level. Like, you know, stuff that gets to me, it's like, like, right. how can this be happening? You know, it's like, it just doesn't make any sense. Like, it's just evil. So, um, but then there's got to be a deeper conversation where I find my peace, which is like, okay, there's an intelligence that I just am oblivious to that is far, far bigger and more powerful than me. And so I'm going to trust and I'm going to keep doing what I can to inspire the shift in awakening. There's more love, there's more compassion, there's more unity. Um, and hopefully that transcends whatever dark forces seem to be at play right now. So yeah, fear and excitement, they come from different forms of conditioning. Um, I think, you know, if people really want to get a takeaway from the, you know, it's a beautiful question is that the, just recognize that regardless of how you're looking at it, life is uncertainty. And hang out there for a minute, just yeah. see how that feels, right? Like, and it also helps to see like what you kind of touched on where if, okay, you look into uncertainty or the unknown and you have excitement. All right, great. It works out how you were excited for it to, And then it happens. You suck some of the juice of it happening spontaneously in that moment, or you look into the unknown and you're fearful about it. It happens the way you thought it would. Okay. Mm -hmm. Now you suffered twice. Yeah. Or if it didn't go the way that you thought, but you were just fearful of it. Okay. You suffered and were fearful unnecessarily. Yeah. And it's, I think Mark Twain has the quote, some of the worst things in my life never happened. Right. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Yeah. You could argue then you get the joy of relief. Like it's like, you know, this silly joke, but like a guy's hitting his head against the wall and his buddy walks around the corner and sees him. And he's like, what the hell are you doing? He's like, I'm hitting my head against the wall. And he's like, well, I can see that, but why are you doing that? He says, oh, I feel so good when I stop. <laughs> uh, right. So, you know, there's an argument for the fact that like some people become addicted to their own suffering. And again, I would assert it's not a conscious process. It's just that the ego's predominant focus or intention or drive is self-righteousness. Like I want to be right about my inadequacies. Like, yeah. see, I told you that relationship would last. See, I knew I'd lose that job or damn it. I knew I'd put the weight back on, right? Like, like what, what's the undercurrent of those declarations is really, it's just a self-righteous like way of 
sustaining and perpetuating the ego, which has to, we have to have evidence for it because the ego itself is fictitious. It's based on illusory language. It's not who we are. So in order for it to be sustained, you actually have to find evidence. Otherwise it's like, well, based on what that you're not enough or that you're not loved or that you can't have any self-worth. Right. So the, the ego is ironically always looking for, you know, like exhibit a and B it's like its own, judge and jury, you know? (laughs) Yeah. And you'll have great fear in releasing what you perceive to be you, because especially a lot of times people have garnered a lot of things, uh, validation, money from the outside world by virtue of Mm -hmm. their identity structure. So it's been useful for them and fear in releasing that. And that in a way is a perceived death of sorts. Yeah. One of my favorite subjects, death, death, death (laughs) to the dark side. Um, Yeah. It, 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 there's a lot of, from the perspective of the ego, there's a lot of benefit by maintaining the feeling of insecurity, inadequacy, or scarcity, right? Like it's like survival. The, the survival of its own self, which when I first got into my work, you know, a while back now, I was like just fascinated by the fact that people were actually more committed to being right about their shortcomings than being free. <laughs> and it was like, wait, but but I'm pointing something out to you that is going to give you like freedom and joy. And so, nope, nope. But if you'd just spoken to my dad, you'd know. <laughs> okay. So you, you're still fighting for your limitations. Okay. Yeah. And that's just where, you know, you're going to meet someone if they're not ready. Now, yeah. again, nowadays I, I tend to not either attract those people or my degree of mastery and be able to like cut through that quickly for people obviously tends to like really resonate with why, they may be speaking to me, so I don't, I don't get those arguments anymore. But I was like, wow, people just want to be right about their mm. own shortcomings and their limitations. Mm. So be it. Yeah. And you touched on earlier, I mean, it's, you know, it's like nutty nutty. You realize you shed all the layers of who you think that you are after everything of realizing who you're not, then yeah. who you are remains. You know, nutty nutty is not this, not, not that. that. And so that's, yeah, that's beautiful. Yeah. Uh, I mean, goes back to how we started. That's freedom. Uh-huh. Freedom from self, right? And oftentimes, and again, it's a subtle distinction, but when you were pointing out about this sort of no beautiful title, Know Thyself, it's really, it's not a discarding so much. And I think this is where a lot of people get caught is like, oh, I'm trying to let go of my ego. I'm trying to get rid of, I'm trying yeah. to fix. And it's like, no, actually it's an inv- invitation for love. It's an integration. That's why I said earlier, you know, something that I think a lot of people will remember and you you were moved by when I was sharing. It's like it's I'm in my human nature, I am by default, by being human, going to have the experience of feeling flawed, broken, inadequate, whatever it is. Right. That's that's an inextricable part of the human experience. It's not we're not here to fix that. We're not here to get rid of it. We're not here to hide it, even though that's the game that people are playing. Like, oh, no, no, I'm perfect. I'm not flawed. Right. That's the presentation, the attempt, which is really the underlying imperative there is for going back to belonging. But what we're asking the external world, we're looking for an exogenous form of love and acceptance, which is only reinforcing the fact that we don't have that for ourselves. So really the catalyst to win the game is no, I'm going to find love and acceptance for myself. And the only way that you can do that is to actually integrate and accept the parts of you that are fundamentally, they're not really, but in language flawed. Yeah. Then <laughs> you kind of win the game because you're not asking for other people to love you. They have no choice because you've already decided that for yourself. You've discovered that for yourself. Mm. So um, 
the game that most people are playing doesn't work and why relationships don't work is because people are asking somebody else to be the energy that they're not willing to be for themselves. Mm. I'm going to let that one breathe for a second. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's some good stuff right there. Yeah. It kind of encapsulates a lot, right? That yeah. we're under the impression that what we're looking for is outside of us. And so what without, you know, again, this is where compassion comes in and no judgment is that we're oblivious to the fact that what we keep propagating and sustaining is the uh, the feeling of the absence of it and that it's out there somewhere, whether it be, you know, it doesn't have to be a romantic partner. It could be just something to do with like our own perception of status in the world, our feeling of security because of the size of our bank account, which speaks to value proposition, our own worth. But if we discover those qualities within each of us, not only do they tend to be the precursor to those things actually manifesting because it's an extension of how we see ourselves. It's like you step in some, you step in front of a mirror, you don't see, you know, let's say like if you were to step in front of the mirror and if we had to take an extreme, you don't see like a, a, a very like a five foot like woman with blonde hair, right? Like you don't know that. <laughs> I've I've Maybe been in front of a mirror with you. <laughs> but you're right. I don't know that. Maybe that's what you do see. Maybe. Maybe. Is this shocking news to you? This is why I wanted to go in the forest with you, Peter. <laughs> then I'd make it. <laughs> um, I hope I just didn't upset you there. <laughs> if I just shattered your whole view of yourself. I'm, I'm devastated. <laughs> yeah. Um, so that that is equally manifesting in life beyond just the simplistic view of a mirror. So when we discover those qualities as an innate, inherent sort of aspect of who we really are, then life's like, oh, okay, finally you got it. So let me let me reflect that to you. Versus so many people who might have the quintessential packaging put together on the external, but then they're wondering, why, do, why is my life not working? Well, because the real energy, the actual vibration and frequency that you're holding in the way that you don't necessarily know yourself to be, but who you are, is what's getting reflected. Mm. It's not how you present it. Mm. It's not the compensation for it. Yeah. So mm. that's, um, yeah, super powerful. Very powerful realization. Yeah. I love the way you articulate things. And there's something to like witness a master at their craft, whether it be playing the piano, like a concert pianist mm -hmm. or somebody who's, you know, just Steph Curry in the NBA finals right now, swishing threes. Like there's something right. so beautiful about that. And the way that you articulate the inner dimension is like second to none from who I've, I've studied many people, but like the way that you put it, it's because I feel like you have an inherently deep understanding of so many supporting dimensions of how it all fits within another. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's just like a, a really beautiful thing just to listen to. To Thank contemplate you. on, to re-listen to. Yeah, yeah. yeah, I appreciate that. Yeah, that's uh, you've 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 often been very generous with your words to me, but like that's uh, I get it. It's really yeah. it means a lot because I can't necessarily or I don't necessarily state claim to the way that I can articulate and whether I'm doing my version of Steph Curry with language yeah. or it's Mozart in the way that I have a cadence in my words, whatever it is. But like I certainly am very grateful for it and the yeah. difference that it seems to make. And the number of people like yourself who've said, wow, like the something about you, just the way you said that, like I've kind of heard that before, but the way you articulated, like I just got it. Like it yeah. just something clicked. Right. Yeah. So, so thank you. Yeah, yeah absolutely. And there's no slight on other people. I just think that when maybe you, a little bit, <laughs> yeah, screw <those laughs> <That's people>. just, <laughs> <laughs> no, I, but I think it's because you inherently like you, you really understand it. 
Yeah. Like a lot of people are regurgitating information and it's coming from a knowledge, not a gnosis. Mm-hmm. So there's a big distinction. It's a huge distinction. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I might've told you that one. <laughs> Quite possibly. <laughs> yeah. No, knowing is very cerebral, very in the head, right? Versus gnosis is like, it's a profound, deep yeah. knowing, like a guttural knowing. Yeah. So yeah, spot on. As far as I can say, when people ask me, like whether it's in interviews or podcasts, they're like, well, I, how do, how do you like, how do you say that? Like, where, where did you study? It's like, you want to see like a certificate on my wall? It's yeah. like, like, I always think that's funny. Like when people, and I'm, again, I'm fortunate that people just tend to buy resonance really go, wow, like this guy's got something. I might not fully understand it, but I want to re-listen. Right. Or sometimes it's like, just like minds are being blown, but I'm like, okay, but would you go to a psychiatrist or a psychologist, you know, a therapist? And they're like, yeah. And I was like, based on the fact that they've got certificates on the wall. And they're like, yeah, like they've studied. I'm like, okay. But who did they study, right? Like, and they're like, okay, well, Freud or Jung. Okay, great. So where did Freud and Jung go to school? And where, who did they, st- like, eventually you right. go back to, like, someone made shit up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right? Absolutely. Like, that's where it came from, right? Yeah. Like, eventually you realize that there was no university, there's no college, there's no medical school. Like, and somebody, like, just had a divine relationship with consciousness. Mm-hmm. And I feel that's that's my my study. That's my qualification. Is yeah. that like in ways that I can't again feel like I own, but rather as my own karma that I was introduced to, like these profound truths that everybody can resonate. It's not Peter Crone's opinion. It's just I'm just pointing out what is, yeah. and you see it or you don't. Yeah, clarity is not confusing. Yeah. Wait, say that again. <laughs> you uh, lost me. <laughs> That's the Austin Powers. That's yeah, baby. Yeah, baby. <laughs> so good. Okay, cool. I would like to go into a little bit of this umbrella, which is the nature <laughs> of the mind, because you mm-hmm. have been given the moniker. I don't know by who, maybe yourself. The Self-created, mind, yeah. Okay, mind architect. Yeah. So I, I'm sure you have thought quite a lot about the nature of the mind. Yeah. When I have and when I've studied Buddhist philosophy, there's these different aspects, qualities of the mind, right? Mm -hmm. So the mind is inherently radiant, meaning there's this capacity to know. Mm -hmm. It's ceaselessly responsive, meaning it can't help but uh, essentially respond to external Mm -hmm. um, happenings. And the kicker is it's inherently empty. Mm -hmm. Now, this is really fascinating to me because we spend so much of our time in our life preoccupied with the mind's business. Yeah. And yet it's inherently empty. Like if you try to say you got it or you grab it, it just, mm-hmm. it's not there. Right? right. But it's, you're operating with it so much throughout your daily life. So just hearing that, is there anything that you would like to touch on about the nature of the mind that um, you feel like, because your mind is is so brilliant and I'm just wondering how you, how you view it and operate your own mind and use it as a tool mm-hmm. instead of letting it like kind of, you know, use you. Yeah. And I like the way you phrase that because I think everyone can relate to that, right? Like most people, I think, feel used by their mind. They might not actually know that until we just declared it, but um, there's no worse sort of critic than self, right? So even though people get upset when somebody says something derogatory to them, if they were really to look at their life, there's nobody who beats the shit out of themselves more than themselves, right? So, yeah, so mind is a fascinating thing to look at in terms of structure, right? Like fundamentally, if we look at it, mind is a word, it's four letters, it's a sound, but it points to something. And so for me, the way I articulate it or the way that I perceive it is mind is fundamentally a space, which goes to your third point about like this sort of inherently empty or there's nothing there. So I wouldn't say it's empty because 
even going back to the kid in the woods, you know, it's like there's going to be sensations. Like you have a brain, right? There's neurological interactions. There's synapses of firing. There's a lot of stuff going on, even if it's just biochemistry. So, but the way I look at mind is really, it's much more akin to a computer, right? So you have a fundamental operating system and then you have software. So everybody nowadays, even if they don't own one, is aware of what Apple is. And for the most part, people are going to have a laptop. And when they buy a laptop now, it's pre-installed with iTunes and Safari and Garage or whatever, GarageBand or whatever it is. Like there's software programs. But you could reset the computer and get rid of, in theory, every piece of software. And you'd be left with the operating system. Hmm. Now, that operating system has evolved over time. The laptop that you buy today in 2022 is going to be vastly superior to one that you might have bought in 2010. And that would have obviously superseded anything that was in 2000, yada, yada, yada. So th- even without the software, the fundamental operating system has evolved. And that really is the container in which you can get to add programming. Now, somebody might be a designer. And so what they want to do is get all the Adobe suites and they function in Adobe Illustrator and Photoshop. That's their software. Yep. So that's what they're putting in their mind. And for Somebody as a human being, what they might put in their mind is a like the study of a, like law, and they become an attorney. For somebody else, it might become they become a, mark, a car mechanic, and they know everything about like the carburetor to whatever it is that they have to study. So, but they both had the basic operating system. Now, this is where I think there's also room for a lot of compassion, which is everybody's functioning within a hundred percent of their capacity, but everyone's hundred percent capacity varies. Mm. So. Then you start to see, okay, well, if in the absence of programming, we're left with operating systems, which I would assert is getting closer to what the mind is, which is really just the space of possibility. Mm. Then we start to become a little bit more responsible for like, okay, what is the code? What is the programming that I'm quote unquote ingesting or reinforcing? No different than diet, right? In Ayurveda, which is part of my work, we look at like ingestion on all levels. We don't just look at it as like, what are you putting in your mouth and swallowing into your stomach? It's like, what are you visualizing? What are you watching? Like if you're watching horror movies and like these horrific like shows with a lot of violence, then it's really not that different than eating like a bunch of junk food, right? And I could assert probably even worse. Are you listening to lyrics and music in like some of these like very derogatory sort of rap songs. And, you know, it's like, again, I'm not judging. I'm just saying that the vibration of those, those lyrics is a form of ingestion that fundamentally is going to be put into your mind that is going to create a tendency towards maybe the way that you relate to people in a much more sort of hostile way, right? Versus you're listening to beautiful classical music or you're listening to like um, some of this more like yogic music, Etc. Cetera, Etc. Cetera. And yeah. again, not like I'm leaning in either way. I just want people to understand that there, there's resonance, just cause so, and effect, just yeah. absolutely, just physics of like what is that vibration. Yeah. So that to me is really the mind, which is it's a space, it's a container, and to a certain degree, people have a proclivity towards like greater intelligence and greater awareness, and some don't. That doesn't matter. Uh, it's just what is the software that you're putting in there. Now, of course, in the formative years of being a child, a lot of that f- software is being triggered and installed from parents. Like, you know, money doesn't grow on trees and don't do that, you're bad. You know, and before you know it, that then becomes the structure in which an adult is born, not realizing that they've become very confined by the program that was put in their mind when they were very young. Yeah. So, so mind is just really, if you really want to break it down and make it synonymous with one word, it could be like mind is possibility. Mm. Pure possibility. Yeah, well, that's two words, so... <laughs> 
way to mess it <laughs> up. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's just, it's space. Like yeah. that's whenever I've done, whenever I do events and workshops and stuff, I often ask, you know, that first question. I was like, okay, if I was to ask you as a group, like, you know, what's mind, you know, and people are like, you know, thoughts, beliefs, feeling like, and I'm like, okay, these aren't inaccurate, but I want you to consider mind is just a space. Yeah. Now you go, okay, it's like, it's no different than this room, right? This room for whatever, like, you know, 100 square feet, or whatever it is, like, you know, there's a possibility in the room and you've just done an incredible job of what you've created in this room. I is, brought it to its brink. <laughs> right? yeah. it's, it's on the verge of busting, but like the possibility that you created here is for a podcast studio. For somebody else, if they lived in this space as a family, what this room might be is with pink colored um, walls and like, you know, things hanging from the ceiling for with a beautiful cot because they're expecting their first child. Mm -hmm. So the mind in that case represents the walls. And then the possibility within that is really, you know, through your own declaration and what you commit to creating. And what are you committed to creating? Because obviously you create the walls of your own mind and mm -hmm. you have obviously big visions and we've had many conversations of this. What is your vision for humanity? For humanity as and, one and, form of creation? Yeah, and the way that you want to kind of leave, uh, yeah, your, your creation and how you see it impacting the world. Um, I mean, to try and keep it as succinct as I could, it would be the dissolution of suffering. And suffering in the way that I kind of distinguished it earlier, which is like the idea that there's anything wrong with anybody, right? Like, which then would cascade into all of the atrocities that we see with the abhorrent behaviors of hostility and and abuse and war. Like these are all catalysts, yeah. or not the catalyst, but the byproduct of the catalyst of feeling that we're fundamentally separate, we're different, the division that everyone keeps to, you know, whether it be the media or whoever, like trying to actually sustain because it pays well. Yeah. But like, yeah, for me it would be dissolution of suffering, which really we could come back to the one word is like freedom. Or if we're going to do two Pure words. freedom. Yeah, I'd like total freedom. <laughs> Pure possibility, total freedom. There we go. <laughs> it's a little different. Yeah. So you've obviously worked with incredible people, very successful people from yeah. all walks of life. I think that a lot of people have this notion that people are just cut from a different cloth or when you're a billionaire or you become a successful celebrity, um, these these woes that are common to humanity in general and human mm -hmm. suffering like just evaporate or something yeah. and obviously by virtue of you being hired by so many successful individuals that's obviously not the case because you're right. helping them with something that most people can't which yeah. is why they seek you out you work at a very high level and yeah so do you see i guess what are the kind of difference between working with those types of individuals versus just the everyday person i'm sure you see the similarities just at a different scale for sure. In terms of like the, the fundamentals of what's going on between the ears and suffering as we de delineated it versus pain, like it's really no different. Like I often said, like, you know, the person with a ton of money is drinking Cristal champagne. The guy or the girl who doesn't is drinking Bud Light. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like one costs like buck 99 for a can. I don't even know, but you know, <laughs> and another's like $300 bottle of champagne. So you could say that it just makes the methods by which people seek comfort with their own self-medication, just more expensive or more available. Yeah. So, but the human being underneath the surface is still looking to escape. Mm. So it really comes down to the same thing, which is why I feel so blessed that I can work across the gamut of human you know, experiences. Like whether I'm working with a 13 year old kid who's throwing his golf clubs and having tantrums, you know, whose parents don't have much money to, a multi-billionaire who's got this conglomerate around the world. It's, a, 
you know, it's like, okay, who are they for themselves underneath the surface that is still feeling like they're not responsible, they're victims of life? Like, you know, one of my billionaires was talking about, like, he was so pissed and he's like, you know, like, why am I the one that always have to take care of everyone's freaking problems, right? Like, so you could say that that reaction is based in reaction to something he doesn't want, which is no different than the kid that throws his clubs because he, in reaction to what he didn't want, which is he hit a bad shot for him. And now they're both upset. So the adult is just having a tantrum, but in the guise of an adult who has got usually the language and the ability to justify, rationalize why they should be upset. But really, when you break it down, like, you know, you're, you're just sulking. You're just mm-hmm. like a kid. So the same dynamics are at play. It's just one has got like a lot more padding, you know, yeah. a lot more fluff. Right. Which actually can can ops, uh, often become an obstacle to you know, finding real freedom because there's just so many means by which you can mitigate and offset the suffering because you've got people who are yesing you, you've got no end of means to be able to buy whatever it is you need to offset some of that or go on a vacation, jump on your jet, like, you know, buy a new home, like something that could be that big dopamine hit that is sort of subtly but insidiously hiding what's really at play here, what you're trying to find is true freedom and joy and peace. So, so there's really no difference energetically. Yeah. There's only a difference materially. <clears throat> and from the perspective of an, uh, an onlooker, you know, who doesn't have the wherewithal to be able to see beyond like the facade, it, it looks like, and I'm not denying that like, obviously having means and resources makes life seemingly easier. But I think to speak to people who don't have it, don't, you know, don't think that's where it's at. Because you, then you're still playing the game of one day when, you know, like when, when I have enough money, then in the future, like, pfft, I'm going to be so good. <laughs> it's like, okay, yeah. no, you're just going to have more money and you can afford me. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Because <laughs> you're still going to, you know, it's like, yeah. so it's, it's just like, it's recognizing that it doesn't matter. And we could argue that the person who's beautiful, the Steph Curry's, who's got talent, you know, the, the person who, for some reason, inherited a ton of money, like that, they they got it good, you know. And we could break it down to like, okay, different levels of karmic incarnation, and like you're just here to look at something else. And it's no different than the different levels that you face in a game. Like yeah. you know, you go through these different tiers because you've gone through different things previously, and now you're ready to face different demons, obstacles, and trials and tribulations. So, for me, it's really if you can really break it down to the irrelevance of what's going on externally and all of it, all of it is just a catalyst for you to see, going back to what I said, like where you're not free, mm-hmm. then it changes. It just reframes the way you relate to everything because mm-hmm. everybody is still so focused externally that the, the exogenous means of finding my freedom. And most people of course think it's going to be found through more money in a future based proposition. Yeah. That's where my joy is. And when I'm like, all you keep reinforcing is the idea that you're not where you're meant to be, which is now you are in suffering, which of course is only going to inspire you to want to get to the future because you're in suffering, Mm -hmm. not realizing that you're the one that is actually creating the suffering, right? Like that's the thing that fascinated me going back to the mind. I realized like there's this one brain within the mind in terms of your own conditioning that is creating a future that you're potentially worried about or the concern for like, well, what about this or what about that? Whatever it is, fill in the blank. Everyone's got a million of them. Not realizing, and then you come back to present time, reflecting on the superimposition of a future that you don't want or you're concerned about. There's this avoidant energy. And so that one brain that created that is now in present time trying to reconcile how do I avoid it? 
not realizing that you made it up in the first place. <laughs> and then you wonder why people drink so much. <laughs> it's like playing cat and mouse with yourself. Yeah. And then people are exhausted. Yeah. So once you start to see like the, the mechanical, the formulaic nature of how the brain works, which is really to predict and protect, right? Yeah. Like it does its job. It's a survival yeah. instrument. But beyond the the primal needs of survival, which I'd say nowadays, I mean, it's it's still a sketchy world, but like we're, we're beyond what was at once, like you really are in danger just by leaving your cave, right? Because you don't like talk about uncertainty, like you really don't know what's out there in terms of potential animals that could take you down. And now it's just a f- different form of perceived threat, right? But it doesn't have the same significance about it. But in terms of our central nervous system, it still has the same impact. And this is why, again, sadly, people are on a lot of prescribed drugs and, and now they become even more compromised. Going back to my bike image, you know, the bike is leaning, leaning more and more and you have less capacity to bring it back to balance. So we're all fucked. <laughs> <laughs> Was that the answer? Uh, yes, I'll, I'll accept. <laughs> yeah. Uh, no, we, we, you know, hopefully people are getting something from this. But I think so. And I definitely yeah. enjoyed the levity throughout it because, you know, dive deep into the depths of yeah. self-realization. And, you know, if we don't forget to smile throughout the process, we are. It becomes too heady, you know, and I think, again, this is why people do enjoy my work and why the, yeah. the journalists, you know, refer to me as Buddha Einstein and Austin Powers is that like Buddha's got the spiritual component and, you know, really the, the philosophy and then Einstein is like, yeah, just deal with cause and effect. Like we're in a physical universe. Like you can sit home all day and meditate and be in the state of like pure bliss. But like at some point you've got to like open the fridge door and have a snack, Mm -hmm. you know, like that's physics. And then throw an Austin there. It's like, okay, like stop taking it all so seriously. (laughs) (laughs) Have a little bit of a, you know, have fun shag baby. You know, it's like, we, we need more of us. (laughs) Not according to some people out there. They're trying to, mm. they are trying to kill us, but <laughs> yep. less of us. Mm. Anyway. Anyways. Yes. Beautiful. Yeah. How, how, what has been the process of you? I feel like one of the most worthwhile skill sets you can develop in life is just mm. your ability to listen, mm-hmm. which comes when you're present, not operating these future-based propositions that we just talked about. Yeah. How have you cultivated that in your life? Because obviously you're very good at it. Thank you. Um, Not to keep blowing smoke up your ass, but <laughs> I'm getting closer to this trip to the woods. <laughs> You're good. Um, I would say it's not so much what I cultivated, but it's the absence of something, right? So most people, and I use those take, terms. Take the wind out of my question. You're absolutely <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. Yeah. yeah. So, because cultivation has the underlying um, sort of implication that it's something I've worked on. And I'd actually say it's the dissolution of something, which was the idea that I was worried about what people think about me. Mm. So in the absence of former Peter, like who I thought I was, who I was in my own view of myself as inadequate or self-conscious, then I'm just with you, right? And that's love, right? To me, like I equate listening to love. And why most people can't listen is because they're still subtly or sometimes quite significantly in a place of being so self-aware because they're scared. Mm. Right? Think about a kid who's been reprimanded one too many times, then their ability to listen to what their parents saying is so compromised or it can equally become incredibly vigilant, right? Because they're now so petrified that they don't want to get in trouble that they're like, like, Okay, what are they about to do or say? Like they are just so aware of their surroundings to the point of like it's actually a sickness. 
like the OCD kind of stuff that goes on out there for a lot of people because they're in such a fight or flight mode. So I would say my listening was the byproduct of the disintegration or the, the dissolution of the idea that there was anything for me to survive. You got that? Got that. <laughs> yeah. 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 It's a beautiful place to be because it's not to say that like, cause people are like, well, how come you're just so at peace on a stage or like you, you're just such a great orator or a great public speaker. And I'm like, well, I wasn't always there. Like there was, I could, it was the absence of me that led to that. It wasn't that I became that. It was the part of me that was previously concerned or like, am I going to do a good job? Will I be funny? Will they like what I say? Am I saying the right thing? Uh, am I going to get the job? Will I get the, whatever it is that was a concern or perceived threat was actually the obstacle to just self-expression. Yeah. And this is where I think kids are so beautiful, especially when they're young. You put like a two-year-old or three-year-old, one-and-a-half-year-old in a room full of like super successful, brilliant, articulate, talented adults who are like 40 years plus. The kid's going to get all the attention mm -hmm. because everybody else is their heirs and graces and their ambassadors are having the conversations like, oh my gosh, did you follow the stock market? And like, isn't it awful what's happening over in, you know, Ukraine mm -hmm. or what? like these conversations, which really underneath it, you know, there's just somebody who just wants to say, you know what, my just really struggling at home right now. You know, it's like my, my kids don't listen to me. Like I'm, I'm I think I'm going to get divorced. And it's like, it's like, whoa, like, you know, it's like, there's an authenticity that gets someone's attention. Whereas most people are like playing this game of pretense, right? Like it's like, who do I have to be in order to like feel going back to that sense of belonging or worth? And so uh, now you've lost relatability. You're not actually being real. And so there isn't a relationship. Like the, yeah. when I share this with people, they're blown away. I'm like, you're not actually in a relationship with your partner. Like, well, what do you mean? We've been, 50, been together 15 years. I'm like, no, you, you've had the form of it, but you don't relate to each other. Mm. So in the absence of the idea of a part of us that feels the needs to survive, garner love or belonging or a sense of worth, once that's dissolved, then all you're left with is presence. Mm -hmm. And it's like, I'm, I'm here with you. And I, I, you didn't send me one question. I didn't know what this conversation was going to be. And so far I feel like there have been pretty decent responses. <laughs> you know, so like I didn't prepare. Now, Peter of Young, you know, early 20s coming out of college, I might have been like, hey, can you send me some of the questions? Because what I would have wanted to do is have good answers. Why? Because right. I want to make sure that people think I'm really cool, you know. But that wouldn't matter if they thought I was cool or not. Even if they did, I'd still be in a state of suffering because I didn't think I was. And that's why I'm trying to garner it from somebody else. Right. Right? So, yeah. And that le leads you into your work with people who are high performers as well, because when you're not operating in the present moment, you're leaving the only place that you have power to do anything, right? A hundred percent. Yeah. Yeah. And this is again, going back to that quote, it said like past hurt informs future fear. So I'm working with a golfer, a baseball player, an Olympian. It's like, it doesn't really matter. Every, every athlete, especially in baseball, because it's a sport predominantly dictated by failure is going to have disappointments. And so it's who can integrate that the best and stay committed to either what they feel is their inherent talent or a skill that they continue to develop such that they're not, then their, their future gains are in no way compromised by their past failures. And that to me is, you know, that's the most beautiful human being to witness. And regardless of whether it's sport or anything, it could be relationships, it could be health and sickness that people overcome. Like, I think we all can relate to like the rags to riches story. Like there's a feeling of, 
inspiration in those stories because we see somebody that even in the face of their own adversity is able to overcome that conquer and then create a better life for themselves which i think is really the what we're all here for is to like even my story i don't really harp on it because it's been so integrated but a lot of people when they discover that like i was orphaned yeah. at a young age i don't have family wasn't left a penny and so that a lot of people are like wow like i didn't know that or like gosh you could have been so bitter at life or you could have become an, an addict or just hated or felt like it was unjust and unfair and why me and mm -hmm. you know and instead I've gone the other way which is like now I just want to be even more loving and recognize that my story is my story but everyone's carrying their version of a cross and their own suffering and the degree to which we can bring more love and compassion for one another is hopefully we can turn this paradigm into something that's a little closer to a slice of heaven yeah as opposed to the shit show that we seem to be in right now yeah. so so yeah having that having that compassion whether it be with an athlete of integrating accepting and not just like disowning or disregarding our history but really just to say that everything that i've been through is an integral part of who i am today and for yeah. that reason i'm grateful mm. <clears throat> And it's in that accepting of our path that we find the liberation of ourselves. I feel like most people that see who you are today and hear that your parents died when you were young and the trials and tribulations that you've gone through would be very shocked. It's, it's truly, cause I look at myself and I look at like, you know, relationship that I just got out of. I look mm -hmm. at certain things that I've had in my life that have felt difficult at the time, but I realize that I want the version of me that has gone through this shit yeah. because that person has more to give to the world. Yeah. And I feel like it just brings even more credibility to who you are, that you're not just spitting some philosophy here. You've gone through the, yeah. the challenges of life mm -hmm. and you've applied what you've learned throughout it. And now you're sharing it with just, you know, so beautiful. Thank you. Yeah. And I, I think it, that also adds to that level of authenticity that I spoke to earlier, which is like, I'm not just some, trust fund baby who was given like Ivy league education. I got, I got denied entrance to the university I wanted to go to four times. Right. So I eventually just picked up the phone, which was a rotary phone. I mean, there's a lot of zeros. Like yeah. you got to go, I don't know, you might be too young. You don't remember, but like, like I'm dialing a college at the ripe old age of 19 or 18 or whatever. And because I'd been denied entrance because my dad died in the middle of what we call our A-levels, which is the equivalent of like, um, is it sophomore and high school? Like those, the two years of high school, whatever. Mm -hmm. Like, so in, in England, they're the pivotal years in terms of what determines your grades, which are um, the determining factor into where you can go. Like, and to begin with, I was doing really well. And I actually, we, we do what's called A-levels and normally do three, but they said I could do four because I had the bandwidth and the capacity. And I was sort of on track to do the Oxford and Cambridge or whatever. But then my, my dad went to work one day, never came back. And suffice to say, that was pretty traumatic. And so I wasn't at school for a long time and my grades suffered. Um, you know, the association of what I went through didn't have school time, you know, it was all correlated. Mm -hmm. And so... Um, I didn't go to Oxford or Cambridge. I didn't even apply, but I applied to a school that's arguably, you know, perennially in the top 10 of colleges. It's a good college. And, um, but I got to know, even though the, the principal, the headmaster of my college wrote, uh, of my school wrote a letter to explain some of the situation. Didn't matter. So I, I saw it as an opportunity to take the year off and you did some work experience, which is also pretty common in Europe, certainly in England. And then I reapplied, still got to know. 
And actually in the first year, there's a second, you can do what's called clearing. You do the second time. So then there's two times, then the no, and then eventually I just called. Like, and I spoke to um, Dr. Ward. Like, you know, it's one of those moments. Like, it's just, it's, it's so pivotal in my story that it was so beautiful because he picked up and, and thank you talking about listening that as a man who doesn't know who this kid is, like, like I'm literally cold calling a college. And I explained my situation and argued my case in a compassionate way. And I just said, you know, I can remember saying, I, I certainly had some balls then. I don't know where I got them from, but I said, you know, like, I, I just want you to know that I'll be as good as, if not better than any of the students you have accepted through the traditional means. And I said it in a way that wasn't arrogant, but like, I really was heartfelt. I just, I guess there was a deeper gnosis again of like, like what I could bring. So he said, okay, let me talk to the head of the department. We'll get back to you. And uh, anyway, called me back the next day uh, and said, yeah, we've made a spot for you. And I'd never even been to the college. I hadn't even like looked at it. It was just a deep knowing that that's where I wanted to go. But I do remember like within the first week or two, like going to all the different classes and he was the head of genetics and sitting at a desk. And back then it was like the old wooden desk. And, you know, he was walking around. It was our first class in genetics. I was studying human biology and exercise physiology. And, um, he was whatever the handout was, he put it on the desk and he came up to put it on my desk as, you know, I'm about the 20th desk. And he's like, glad you made it. Mm -hmm. It just gives me the chills now. But, mm -hmm. you know, it's like, so it's a long winded way of like really acknowledging your kind words that like, you know, I've like, I, I don't consider myself special, but I certainly wasn't handed stuff, yeah. you know? And so to go through all of these things and have to fight the good fight and stick to my commitments, I think is something that whether it's, overtly understood or it's more just subtly felt as like, okay, there's something about this guy that the way he speaks, like he's just not sort of from the pulpit philosophizing and telling us how to live his, our lives and telling us what to do. It's like, Hey, listen, I've been through a lot, you know, and if I can share some of that and it's going to impact your life in a way that it makes a difference. And I'm happy to do that. Mm. Do you have a moment that stands out as the most impactful moment of your life? I mean, there's, yeah, there's a few. I mean, obviously, in ways that I don't understand, my mom dying. Like, my dad actually sent me away for a week because she had cancer, so they knew that that was imminent. And God bless him for wanting to protect his son, but, you know, for me at seven, I, I don't know what the hell was going on. I think, you know, my dad going to work and never coming back. Like, just, that's it. Like, you know, like, dad goes to work. Like, you can see him later or tomorrow. Like, you know, no, that's it. Like that really, that was pivotal in a way that it showed me the the absolute impermanence of life, like, and the fragility of life simultaneously. Like there's an assumption that we make that is pretty audacious that we have tomorrow. Yeah. And we just don't know that. You know, you think about how many people have, I don't like the word lost, but for the sake of, you know, everyday vernacular, like lost a child in an accident or lost a loved one or in a tragic accident like my dad. Like, and to me, that really does elicit the, the, the importance of really valuing every moment, you know, without sounding cliche, it's like give your kids a little extra hug today or tell your partner that you really love them. And, you know, people save words for eulogies that are so beautiful. And I'm like, eh, you know, can you just tell them while they're here? <laughs> um, so that was pivotal. And then I'd say right, in terms of like me becoming Peter Crone, the mind architect professionally, it was really my first love, you know, that was, that was pretty powerful. So just sort of, Falling in love as best as I knew at the time as a, as a ripe old, what would I have been, 26-year-old or something, you know, um, 
it was a very novice view of love. Even though I was a very loving guy, it wasn't really love, love. It was just romantic love, puppy love. It was exciting love. It was fun. But like, because of my past hurt, parents dying, I was still in the narrative of loss until I understood there's nothing lost. And so my coping mechanism was find anything of value, in this case, a girlfriend, make sure I don't lose that because that really hurts. <laughs> so that when she actually decided to leave me, which at the time was devastating to the part of me that at the time was based in constraint, um, that was really pivotal because it took about eight weeks of my own suffering and desperate men doing desperate things, meaning calling everybody, how do I get her back, hoping to hear from her, calling her for the first couple of weeks and probably being like really just like an insecure little boy. You know, it's like, come back, mummy. You know, it's like, wasn't a relationship for her. I mean, she loved me. Like it was, it was beautiful. I'm, I'm, I'm being hard on myself, but the energetics of it was a little desperate, you know? And I was the perfect boyfriend, which was my adaptation to making sure that she stayed, which of course never works because the energetics, as we spoke about earlier, was what's actually driving the relationship. So, um, so that was really pivotal because to, to wrap it up in the bow of what the actual epiphany was, yeah. Um, she, as I said, left, she decided, she said, my love was suffocating, which at the time, you know, kind of made sense, but didn't, I'm like, wait, if you're getting that much love, isn't that a good thing? <laughs> but later on, sure enough, when I had my own, uh, sort of quote unquote epiphany and waking, I was like, realized it was like an accurate way of describing it because the energy was very clingy, even though on the surface, you know, gifts for no reason, poetry, like, you know, what every girl would sort of sort of aspire to or at least assert that's what they want in a partner it's like i will i was it but as a as a facade but it's subtle because i genuinely was that guy but there was just that little extra effort yeah. anyway um and then i i didn't she left and you know we had a couple of calls for a couple of weeks and then i was on my own journey for you know deep spiritual transformation for six seven weeks and there were many things that transpired in that, but ultimately it came back to the fact that my narratives were always the concern about the future. Like, um, where is she? Is she dating anyone else? Like, will ever I see her again? Will I have love like that again? Like these sort of incessant, basically unanswerable questions. And it was the unanswerable pack that I, the part that I eventually got, which is like I was sitting at my rent control, in my rent control apartment at an Ikea desk that I put together. Like my life was very basic. And I suddenly got the answer to all those questions. Like, it's like, where is she? Is she dating anyone? Um, will I see her again? Or will I have love like that again? And there were a myriad of other questions. But the answer to all of them was fundamentally the same. And it was in, it was categorically accurate, which is, I don't know. And it, and it just hit me. I mean, it was more like a four by six. It wasn't a two by four. <laughs> but, yeah. I've downgraded the size because that was painful. I'm like, listen, I'm going to hit you, but not as bad as I was hit. <laughs> So, so the four by six was like, it was so profound and I felt a freedom cascade through my body that I didn't know one was possible and two I'd never had before. So not only did at that moment realize that the truth of my concerns was like unanswerable. And then I realized that the nature of life to go back to some of the things we were talking about was uncertainty itself. Like, I don't know what's going to happen, but for the first time in my life, and this was really sort of the, the nugget that made the difference is I was totally okay with it. And that to me was not only just freedom, but it was complete peace because I didn't know what was going to happen and I didn't need to. Mm. And I, I, I went to dinner that night on Montana and Santa Monica and I, I honestly felt like I wasn't even touching the, the sidewalk. Wow. There was just such a lightness. Like it didn't matter. 
Not because I didn't care, but there was the absence of any kind of warrior apprehension. Mm. And that was complete trust. Beautiful. And you speak to that distinction of caring deeply, but not worrying. Yeah. Yeah. It's one of my favorites. Caring to me anatomically is heart centered. I care. We all care. We can't not care. Kid cares. There's a beauty, there's an innocence, but there's a, there's an authenticity about caring. Mm -hmm. What happens is it becomes shrouded in trauma and hurt and suffering. And then it becomes worry for the repetition of those things that then unfortunately tends to inhibit the natural caring. And I think if there's one gift I have, and at one point I really thought it was a weakness because it was hurting too much is that I just really care. Mm. Beautiful. Wow. What a, what a podcast. (laughs) I mean, I feel like you've been running around the podcast circuit for a minute. You've just been like a carpet bomber of wisdom on all these different (laughs) podcasts, just blowing minds and opening hearts. And thank you. Yeah, this has been, this has been so beautiful. Um, A few last quick questions. Okay. And then we'll go from there. Cool. You can answer these quickly if you can. Okay. How do you view your own mortality? (laughs) Uh, Behind me. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> you ever had that answer was well, that a second podcast <laughs> yeah so good. okay is that your answer final answer <laughs> final answer call a friend um yeah i I, th- I think there's two answers to it behind me and um ever present like my joy of life is by virtue of the fact that I embrace my mortality as a consistent experience. Beautiful. Leave it there. Yeah. <clears throat> uh, most impactful teacher of your life. Um, there's, there's, different, there's different facets of what I've been taught that I think warrant speaking to. So the ultimate greatest teacher is life without being cliche, because life is obviously the umbrella in which all of the, the, the more specific players had their role. So I could speak to my mom and dad as being the greatest teachers of what I didn't at the time understand was unconditional love. I could speak to the trials and tribulations of not getting the grades that I wanted, you know, going through school to get to the college that I felt intuitively inspirationally pulled towards as the teacher of commitment. And I could speak to the Srina Sagadatas Maharaj and the Ramana Maharshis, these sort of quintessential Indian gurus as the teachers of wisdom and confirmation of my own insights that at the time when I was having these revelations, I was like, you know, I'm a bit of a freak, you know? So there was a sense of belonging with my homies, you know, even though they died. Um, So yeah, I, I think, and then fundamentally, I'd say, lastly, you know, the acquisition of success for wherever I'm at relative, you know, I'm doing okay, but there's the teaching of humility, you know, so, and then of course the girlfriend, you know, like in the middle there, like just the, the teacher of freedom. Yeah. So being some good teachers. Beautiful. Great teachers. What's one thing in your life that you cherish immensely that most people do not? My hyperbaric chamber. (laughs) 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 Got myself there. Uh, (laughs) That most people do not. Um, Again, it, it might be a hard 
answer for people to hear. But I really want them to get it with the love that it's meant, which is themselves. So really my answer is myself. Mm, beautiful. What do most people, what do I cherish that most people don't is themselves. Mm, amazing. <clears throat> Last one. And we covered quite a bit of this, but if you had to in a succinct way, summarize, what do you feel like the journey is to truly know thyself? What does that mean to you? I mean, rewind the podcast <laughs> and you'll get the answer. That's, that's, everything, the, everything. that's the problem with asking this question at the end of the podcast. Yeah, yeah. We already answered it. Yeah. But it really is, it's the conundrum, right? It's the oxymoron of life, which is to really know thyself, you have to unknow thyself. I don't know if anyone's going to give you that answer. So I might start right there. <laughs> <laughs> 1000%. I love that answer. Yeah. Let's, let's, let's stop there. Yeah. Um, yeah. I don't even know what to say. Like, thank you so much. This podcast has been incredible. I've listened to so many of yours and obviously just by virtue of hanging out and being together at each other's spaces. And mm -hmm. it's been truly an honor getting to know you in this life. And is there, yeah, well, one, where can people find you? Is there anything that you have going on that you would like to share with people, <clears throat> things, offerings that you can contribute um, with, you know, Mm -hmm. uh, outside of the free content that you that you're sharing. Thank you. Um I can be found at peterchrome.com website and then just at peterchrome Instagram. Um but I also just want to acknowledge you like for creating the space. Like I did a breathwork class many years ago and I hadn't it was my first experience of real like a consciously created space for intentional breathwork. And it was profound, you know, like in a way that it kind of gave me a visceral experience of what I inherently know, which was what we've spoken about, freedom, love. But um, why I'm bringing this up in the context of our conversation is there was, it was a big group. It was at a big retreat and there was about 80 people and, you know, people are crying and laughing. There's all sorts of experiences. And then we wrap it up. We all get in a circle. We're all holding hands. And the facilitator is this beautiful woman and it's very profound. I'm sure you've been through it like, you know, it's 30 minutes of this yeah. intense breathing and messing around with your carbon dioxide and oxygen and elicits a really profound, similar to like a ceremony with plant medicine, even though I have yeah. no experience of that, but you got it. So she said, listen, there's too many people in the room. We can't go around and find out everyone's experience, but I'd love to hear from a few people. And I just first put my hand up and I said, you know, what I realized is by virtue of this exercise for which I'm incredibly, you know, humbled and grateful, I said, is my only job is to love. And it really, and it's given me chills now, but it really hit me, you know, in a way that like I had been a very loving person, but it really was, and job was perhaps not the appropriate word because it sort of implied there's some sort of task, but it was, that's how it, that's how it came to me. And then I did a breathwork class two days later on the close of the weekend. And there was a part of me that was sort of the excited for the uncertainty, like where there's an expectation. So that was at the beginning. And then I was like, no, let's see what happens. And so there was a very similar, not to the same degree, but there was a very similar feeling of like, my only job is to love. Like that's the essence of who I am and why, how I want to show up. The difference was, and why I'm bringing it up in the context of your question, is that, again, the group was assembled. I put my hand up and I said, you know, I realized that my only job is to love. And I said, I just have immense gratitude. Because if it weren't for all of you, I wouldn't know that. Mm -hmm. And I wouldn't have the opportunity to exercise it. Mm. 
So why I share that in the context of this conversation is because you've been so gracious and beautiful and such a good friend and we've had beautiful conversations and this has been one of them for sure. And I'm so glad that we've captured it for other people to listen. But, you know, I'm just so grateful because if it weren't for you, I wouldn't have the opportunity to have this conversation. Mm. The love is mutual. <laughs> Off to the woods we go. I'll see you in the woods. <laughs> <laughs> oh, beautiful. Is there anything else that you want to say? No, and to answer your question fully, like yeah. there's the, people can find workshops on my website. There's cool. no particular offering right now. We're in the middle of a really powerful mastermind, which is just, it's incredible to witness what's going on. Like it's like, it's mind blowing for me. Like this community, the things they share, some of which are very difficult to, for people to hear, but they're sharing in a safe space. Everyone's holding everyone's trauma and it's what is transpiring. So we'll be doing that again at some point. So if people are interested in being part of a community like that, it's, it's pretty exquisite to witness. Like mm -hmm. there's nothing like that that I know of on the planet where there's the degree of this wisdom coupled with the immense authenticity of unconditional love. Mm. Beautiful. And you'll be doing another one, I'm assuming in a few months. When that yeah, happens. sometime I'd say, okay. yeah, I don't know, fall, something like that. Okay. August, September, people keep an eye out or they can join a mailing list or, you know, just follow me on Instagram. I'll always announce it. Peter Crown on Instagram. Yes. Beautiful. Yeah. Amazing. Thank you, brother. Thank you so much. And to everybody that's been tuning in, I hope you got a lot of value from this. I know I certainly did. And if you did, please feel free to share this comment. Let us know your thoughts, share it on socials. We love seeing that kind of stuff yeah. and we'll catch you on the next one. That's we got to get, got to get this guy out there. This guy <laughs> holds a beautiful space, like know thyself, right? So that you can unknow thyself. Boom. Boom. That's the new tagline. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Thank you, brother. Beautiful. Beautiful.